We are going to be back in Revelation 21. Revelation 21. So if you'll join me there in your Bibles. We read part of this passage already this morning in our responsive reading. But we're going to begin where we left off a couple weeks ago and read through the rest of the chapter and then we'll see how far we get in that today. So we're going to begin this morning, Revelation 21 at verse 9, and we'll read through verse 27. So if you'll follow along with me, starting at verse 9, the Bible says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and all at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth foursquare, and the length is as large as the breadth, And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs, and the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, 140 and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, and the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll look at our message together. Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, as we study this passage in Revelation about our future home, about what you have prepared for us, Lord, give us understanding and wisdom. Help us to know that you have promised us a future here because you love us, because you keep your promises, and because you want us to experience all that there is to experience of our great God. And here is the culmination of that. So, Lord, just send your spirit to open our minds and hearts to receive that which you want to teach us. I pray that you give me wisdom and strength and fill me with your spirit as I teach so that we might hear from you and be challenged and blessed today by your word. And we thank you again for this time, and we give ourselves to you in it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in Revelation 21, we've been introduced here at the beginning of the chapter, and that was the last couple of weeks, um, to the new heavens and new earth. Remember that God will create after the this present earth and all that surrounds it in outer space is going to be destroyed by him. 
And part of this new heaven and earth that he will create is this new city or the heavenly city called the New Jerusalem. And it's going to come down out of heaven. In verse 2, John introduces that new Jerusalem. And he says <clears throat> uh, in verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And we looked a little bit about the spiritual character of that city in the uh, in verses two and three, and today what we see in Revelation twenty one is the physical characteristics as John describes them to us. But the the focus of this chapter, I think, is in verse six because in verse six we see that Jesus basically gives us the substance of all that is created, both old and new, and how he is at the center of it. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and last. It means not only he's the beginning and the end, but he's everything in between. He is eternity. Everything exists in him. And so the focus is Jesus Christ. We can't miss that. But John gives us some descriptions here about this new, new Jerusalem city in the, the rest of this chapter. But remember in verse 8, we also have been told who are not going to be in this city and who are not going to be part of this new creation in eternity. And he says it's all those who are fearful and the faithless and those whose lives are defined by sin they will be eternally banned from this perfect new creation, and they'll be banished to eternal death in the lake of fire. And that's where we left off in verse 8, the last time we were in Revelation 21 together. And so we need to remember that not everybody is going to make it. It is only those who are overcomers, as we read in verse 7, who are the followers of Jesus Christ, who have truly submitted to him as king in this life so that in the next life to come, we will be his subjects and his kingdom. But as we embark here on the rest of this chapter, and actually it goes on into the beginning of chapter 22, John is given a physical description of what this new Jerusalem will look like and what it will be like. Um, now, I want you to remember, as we embark on this passage here, that this book that we're reading was written by a Jew. Okay, this is a Jewish writing, and that means something, even as we look at the passage today. I know, I know John was a disciple of Christ. He's receiving this vision from Jesus himself and from an angel here in this instance, um, but he is a Jew. That's his background. That's his heritage, and there's a reason for that, you know, and we won't go into all of those details now, but in Jewish writing, it's very common to introduce a topic or a subject and give a quick summary. And then later on in that same work to go back and go over more details about it. We've seen that several times in Revelation already. And here's what's happening here in chapter 21. We're introduced to the New Jerusalem in verse 2, and now John is taken by the angel to a high mountain, and he's shown this New Jerusalem in much more detail. And he gives us all of that detail now about the New Jerusalem that he introduced to us in verse 2. So apart from what some uh, commentators believe, this is not a second New Jerusalem. This is not going back to the Millennial Kingdom and explaining Millennial Kingdom stuff. This is the same New Jerusalem in the new creation that we're introduced to in verse 2. So just to clarify that, I want to make that point. Now, I don't know about you, but this is true about me. Every home that I have ever lived in and bought, I wanted to know as much about it as possible before I moved there. And my wife and I, in being married 31 years, have lived in seven, diff seven different, different houses. Okay, We've moved around quite a bit. In fact, in our early, or I say the early years of our marriage, sounds like I'm like 90, okay, but... <laughs> It's been 31 years. I can't even remember back that far. Anyway, uh, I, we moved about every five or six years for the first 20 years that we were married. Um, we lived in, in several different houses. But before moving into them, um, we became obsessed with finding the right house. And so we would scour the real estate listings. 
And then when we found something that was interesting, we call the real estate agent and schedule a showing. And I think real estate agents that we worked with actually got tired of us calling them because in the course of the 31 years that we've been married, uh, we have visited and looked at probably over 200 houses in four different states, okay? That's a lot of houses to see. But we wanted to make sure what those houses were before we got there. We looked in all the nooks and crannies. We looked in the basement. We went up in the attic. Well, she didn't go in the attic. I went in the attic to see what kind of scary monsters were up there. Um, you know, we looked in the, in the cabinets. We opened the closets. We did all of that because we wanted to know about this house that we were going to make our home. And John does that here for us. So in a sense... John gives us this detailed description of our future home. Now, the difference between this and today's real estate listings is that here John does not exaggerate the truth, okay? That that on earth, that great house, that's the perfect environment to raise a family and everything works. When you move in after a week, you realize everything doesn't work. It's not the perfect environment. You know, the steps creak and the doors squeak and the windows don't shut all the way and You find all these things out. And so real estate agents like to kind of exaggerate the truth, and I'm not going to use the word lie, but they push it a little bit beyond the envelope and make it look good because they want you to buy it. So it's a sales pitch. What John has given us here is not a sales pitch. This is reality, okay? It is not exaggerated. And in fact, I think what we're going to see here is that as we read this, you're going to kind of be overwhelmed with the amount of beauty and splendor and brilliance that this city, this new city of Jerusalem that Jesus has made for us has. Now, in our minds, we might think, well, you know, this sounds kind of backward. You know, John is describing this in terms of, um, you know, old first century beauty and and the jewels and the pearls and the gold and all of that. And so it's like we're walking into a relic from 2,000 years ago, and that's where we're going to live for eternity. And for some people, that could be discouraging. Now, I want you to understand this right from the beginning. John is given this vision, and John is describing what he sees. And remember, he's recording this for the churches that existed in his day. And so in his experience, God is giving him this information, but he's using his background and his experience to explain what he sees in terms that he can understand and that the people he's writing to can understand. Now, what I think is going to happen is when we get to this holy city of Jerusalem, we are going to be awed and overwhelmed and just amazed by the sophistication and the, even maybe the technology, I don't know, that exists in this heavenly kingdom. Okay? John's giving it from his perspective through the Holy Spirit. But this is not going to be some ancient relic that we walk into in heaven. Okay? This is going to be the most beautiful, most incredible house, mansion, city, that we could ever imagine. In fact, I think it's going to be beyond, be beyond what we can imagine. And so I don't want you to get into this mindset, oh, it's old-fashioned, it's, you know, from the... It's not from the past. It's God. It's God's creation. And it's going to be perfect beyond what we can imagine. But this is literally a fulfillment of Hebrews 12. And the writer of Hebrews 12 told to us as believers, he said, but ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, that's what we're talking about, and to an innumerable company of angels. We're going to be here with angels. I want you to think about that. We're going to live right alongside angels in this city. Verse 23 in Hebrews 12 goes on, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, that's us, which are written in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. All of these people are going to be here together. All of the Godhead will be here in this city together with us. It's not going to be we live in this great city and God is in heaven and we can still pray to him, we can go visit him. He will be among us. And that is the most important point of this whole thing. You know, we've read that and we've talked about that. But in verse 9, 
John is given this vision. And so very quickly, I just want to go through some details of this vision to help us understand this home that will be ours in the future. It's not a possibility. It's not something we'd like to have. This will be our future home if we are believers. Okay, so as we look at this, keep that in mind. Verse 9 says, There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now, John says there's an angel that comes to him. One of the seven angels that poured out one of the vials of the, the bold judgments that we read about back in Revelation 16. So this is the last series of judgments that God executes upon the earth. This is one of those angels that poured out one of those judgments. We don't know which one. But now he's come to John and he said, I want to show you something. I want to show you the bride of the Lamb. Okay? Um, and the angel says, that uses this phrase, the bride of the Lamb. Immediately, what comes to mind has to be the church. Okay? Because the church all through the New Testament is called the bride of Christ. And so we're talking about the context, at least, of the church, now in eternity. Now, and I want you to understand this, too. When, the, when the, the angel says that he's going to show John the bride, and then the city from heaven comes out of uh, down, and he, he explains it to us, the city itself is not the bride. It is the, the, the hometown, if you will, the, the um, bridal chamber, the mansion that Christ promised us back in the book of John, okay? This is that home where the bride exists. But the characteristics, especially the fact that the glory of God will shine through this city, reflects a lot of the characteristics of the glorified church, where the the glory of God shines through us. And by the way, there's a side message for you. It's not your glory that you exude on this earth or in heaven when we get there. It's God's glory. And if it's your glory, then you got problems. <laughs> you got things to work out with the Lord because it's not about you. Okay? So this city reflects the glory of God, not the glory of this city. It's not the glory of the bride. It's the glory of the groom who shines through the bride in this city. Okay? And so that's what the angel is talking about. Anyway, it says in the next verse, the angel carries him into a great mountain or carries him in the spirit to a great mountain. That phrase in the spirit just means that John is experiencing this as if he's really there, but his body is still in Patmos as he's receiving this vision. Okay, there are several other uh, prophets and people in the Bible who have experienced visions like this. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 In verse 2 says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such an one was caught up to the third heaven. He's talking about a vision that God gave him and showed him, literally, the dwelling place of God. And he says, I saw things which are not permitted for men to utter. Okay, John is given this very similar vision, and now he's permitted to utter it. God tells him, write this stuff down. Okay? Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, all of them had visions very similar to what John's experiencing here in the spirit. And these are so intense, by the way. Daniel, Zechariah, and and I think even in Ezekiel, they give these visions that they say, God caught me up in the spirit, I received this vision, and then when I came back to myself, they were so worn out. Daniel, in one case, was sick for a week and couldn't function. And so it's not just this little dream they had. This was a a very intense experience that it was literally like they're there experiencing it in person, but it's in their spirit, not in their body. Okay? So that's what this is talking about. This is this vision that John has. And he says, in this vision, the angel took me up to a high mountain. The perspective, I think, that the angel wants John to have is to be able to see the scope of what we're about to hear him describe. But we also see a glimpse of what the new earth is going to look like. Now, let's go back to the tribulation for just a minute, okay? Remember, near the end of the tribulation, there's all these earthquakes, and the the Bible tells us that the mountains were leveled and the islands fled away. And then even in the Millennial Kingdom, it talks about the Great Plain, uh, Battle of Armageddon. The armies marched across the Great Plain of the earth, 
Okay, And the Millennial Kingdom, Jerusalem, or the temple specifically, will be on the highest mountain in the world. So the topography is going to change. We saw that. There probably will be no mountains except for the one in Jerusalem. And yet here, in the new earth, John says, he took me up to a high mountain. So it looks like God's going to give us mountains in the new earth. Um, Just a small detail, but little things like that, you know, describe where we're going to be living someday. Verse 11, John gives us his first impression of the city, standing on the mountain with his angel, and he looks up and he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now remember, Jesus promised that he would go to heaven and prepare a place for us, all right, and that where he was going to be, we would be with him. This is that place, I believe. This is that house that he prepared for us, and it's coming down out of heaven now, all finished, completed, perfected for a dwelling place for the bride, and it will be the dwelling place of Jesus Christ and God the Father as well. But John gives this first impression. He says, it had the glory of God. It had the glory of God. Now, you can read a lot about the glory of God in Scripture. And remember, Moses was one on Mount Sinai, and he asked to see God. And God said, well, you can't see my face because you can't live through that. But I'll pass by you. And so you can see the back of me. And he did. And remember, when Moses came down, his face shone so brightly that the people couldn't even look at him. Okay, And Moses just had a fraction of a glimpse of the glory of God. This city is going to exude 100% of the glory of God. Imagine the brilliance that John is witnessing here. And so he's trying to put it into words for us. But I think it even fails, and he probably wrote this down and go, oh, that's not even close to what I want to say. Okay, but just try to picture this. He says, first of all, it had the glory of God. And then he goes on, he says, it's, it's like a shining, crystal clear jasper. Now, a jasper is a jewel, and it comes in many different colors. Um, the most rare is clear, like a clear piece of glass. And, and that's really what John is talking about. J. Vernon McGee actually points out that this word jasper, our English word jasper, is a transliteration of a Semitic word, iaspis, which could refer in that language to an opal, a diamond, or topaz. So think of a jewel like a finely cut diamond, but the entire city, and you'll see how big it is in just a minute, the entire city shines like a diamond. And that's what John is witnessing here. And he says that's what the glory of God is. That's what it looks like shining through this city. Now, I also want to remember, again, John's trying to put this in language he understands and that we can understand, so it's going to be beyond what we read here, okay? So then he gives us more specific details. First glimpse, it exudes the glory of God like a brilliant jasper or brilliant gemstone. And then he starts to describe, maybe as he gets closer, the details of the exterior of the city. And first thing he notices are the gates and the foundations, He describes the gates first, and he says there are 12 gates, three on each side of the city, which we assume to be a square city because it says the north side, the east side, the south, and the west. Okay, So we assume this to be a kind of a square city. And on each one of those gates is the name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, we're not told the order, and I don't know that that's really that important. And since the Bible doesn't give us the order, I think... Uh, commentators and theologians debate this, and they've spent a lot of wasted time trying to figure it out when it really doesn't matter that much. God will take care of those details. We don't need to worry about it, okay? They'll be in the right order when God puts them there. But each of the gates has one of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on it. And then he goes to the foundations, and it says the foundations of the wall of the city. And I want you to make that distinction. This is not the foundations of of the city itself, it's the foundations of the wall of the city, and that may play a part in how we look at this picture and, and interpret it. So there's 12 foundations, and by the way, the, the number 12 plays a huge part in this because 12 is a completion. There's 12 tribes of Israel. There were 12 disciples, okay? 
Um, if you ask some people who don't know the Bible, they think there's 12 commandments. That's not true. Okay, there's 10. But here, 12 plays a big part, and you'll see that over and over and over. Okay? But there's 12 foundations, each containing the name of one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That defines who we're talking about, the 12 disciples. Now, here we encounter debate material, okay? Because then some people will raise the question, which 12 disciples are we talking about? Are we talking about Judas Iscariot? Well, no, I think we can eliminate him because the word apostle means sent ones. Judas killed himself before they were sent, okay? So he's gone. He was replaced by the disciples in Acts chapter 1 by Matthias. And they went through this process where they prayed and sought God in who should take Judas' place because there should be 12. That's what Jesus called. And they went through this uh, casting lots, which is the way they were sought God's will in those days. And it seems to, to show us in Acts chapter 1 that God appointed Matthias to replace Judas as one of the 12 apostles. So there's the possibility of Matthias being one of these 12. But then you have the question of Paul. He's number 13, and he's an apostle, right? He was struck off his horse by Jesus himself. He was given the authority by Jesus himself as an apostle. And in fact, in Bible study, when we're studying Paul's testimony, he says in his testimony in Acts 26 that um, God sent him, or Jesus came and sent him to the Gentiles. And the word sent there is the Greek word apostelos, which is the word we get apostle from, sent one. That word apostelos is not applied to any of the other 12 disciples. It's a different word when Jesus sends them out. And so the argument then is, well, should Paul be one of these apostles and who doesn't fit? And believe me, I've read a number of commentators and they disagree on this. Now, I'm going to tell you, I believe it's Matthias. And here's why, because first, Matthias is chosen as one of the 12 through the apostles, fasting and praying and seeking God's will. And it seems to indicate in Acts 1 that it was according to God's will that he was put in this place. Also, in Acts 1, it says this, when Matthias was chosen, it says he was numbered with the 11 apostles. In other words, he became one of the 12, okay? Paul himself called himself not worthy to be called an apostle. And in fact, he said he was the least of the apostles. And also, in uh, Paul's writings, he refers to himself literally as an apostle to the Gentiles because that's the specific mission that God called him to. So he's not one of the 12. And in fact, Paul himself in, um, in Corinthians talks about Jesus appearing to the 12, and he did not include himself in that after Jesus' resurrection. Okay, so I believe it's Matthias. So it's the 12 apostles, excluding Paul. I don't know how Paul fits into this, but God will work that out again. All right? Anyway, the names of the 12 apostles are on the 12 foundations. And regardless of whose name is on the 12, there's 12 foundations, the names of the 12 apostles, and they represent the church, obviously, because it says the apostles of the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ, the Lamb died to redeem his church, Okay, he is the final sacrifice. The apostles were the foundation of the church. So there we have the church. Now, many scholars believe that combining both the 12 tribes of Israel in the gates and then the 12 apostles representing the church in the foundations give us an indication here that both saved, redeemed Israel and the church will be the residents of this city as the consolidated bride of Christ. Remember, the angel called this the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb. Okay, so we have to keep that in mind. I want you to think about this. So the apostles represent the foundations of the city or what the city rests upon. The city is referred to again as the angel, as the bride of the Lamb. And there's more than enough evidence in just those two phrases to say, okay, that's, this is going to be the, the residing place, the dwelling place of the church in eternity. Okay, I, I think we can clearly explain that. But it also presents a problem because 
nowhere in Scripture is Israel ever referred to as the bride of the Lamb. Nowhere. In fact, we looked at this back a couple months ago. Israel is referred to as the bride of Jehovah, the Father, but not the bride of the Lamb. And there's a distinction there. Now, some would explain this away by saying that since Jesus Christ is God, God is one person, and therefore by combining the church and Israel in this city, you're really not doing an injustice to the word bride because Jesus is God. God is the Father, Jesus is the Son, but it's one person, and they will dwell in the city, and therefore the entire bride will dwell there with them. And we can accept that that, uh, uh, explanation. In fact, I I suggested that a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the, the beginning of this new city. Okay, But here's another suggestion I want you to think about. The gates of the city, of any city, represent an entrance through which people can come and go. Okay, Israel's name, or the 12 tribes' names, are on the gates of this city. That has to mean something. And so we have to consider this suggestion that maybe the names being on the gates for Israel means they don't live in the city, but they come through those gates to come into the city and to go out of the city and to worship at the city at any time. Now, we're given this picture in the Old Testament when God set up the tabernacle. Remember, in Israel's camp, the tabernacle was to be at the center of the camp. And then Israel camped by tribe, three on each side of the tabernacle, facing the tabernacle. And they would come in each through their own gate into the tabernacle area to worship the Lord. And then they would go back out where they lived. So keep that picture in mind. And in fact, that pattern was repeated even after the tribes were given their their, their territories in the promised land. Now they're scattered through all of the promised land. But where did they come to worship? At the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so they came to worship, then they went back home. So here in Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem is the very dwelling place of God himself, and it, we just read, it serves as the temple. The temple is the dwelling place of God. That's what it is. And so this New Jerusalem will be the dwelling place of God. It is where God resides. So the New Jerusalem serves as the temple in eternity, because that's where God is. Israel then very well, very easily could live somewhere else, and come to the New Jerusalem to worship, and then go back home. Now, the question is where? I think they're going to live in their land. What was God's promise to Abraham? That he would give him all the land which thou seest. This is in Genesis 13, 15, the Abrahamic covenant. He would give him all the land which thou seest. To thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. Forever. That doesn't say until I destroy the world. It says forever. In Exodus 32, Moses, remember after the golden calf incident, Moses comes down from the mountain and God basically tells Moses, okay, I'm going to destroy them and start over with you because they're so sinful. And Moses pleads to God and he reminds him of his promise. And in Exodus 32, 13, Moses says this to God, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I will give to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. That was God's promise. Isaiah chapter 60 is God speaking to Jeremiah about the future of Israel, and he says, Thy people also shall be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. Jeremiah 7, 7, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Psalm 37, 29 says not only that the righteous shall inherit the land forever, but it goes on to say that they will dwell in the land forever. Forever includes eternity. And so if we put Israel into the holy city of Jerusalem as their home We've just negated God's promise to Abraham and Israel of giving them their land forever. And so I think the eternal dwelling place of redeemed Israel is going to be on the new earth, and God will create a land 
similar to what he gave them in the promised land, and he will give that to the tribes of Israel, and they will live there and come to the city of New Jerusalem to worship just as they always have. So I think see it as very likely that redeemed Israel would dwell on the new earth in the land that God promised that they would inherit forever because that's God's promise. Now here's another suggestion about the gates and the foundations. Remember, they're both part of the wall. They're not part of the city itself. The wall is part of the city, but the gates and the foundations are both part of the wall. And you'll see in just a couple of minutes that the gate is measured, or the wall is measured by itself. And the wall is much shorter than the city itself. The wall comes to about 216 feet, okay? The city is much higher. Nine times in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the chief cornerstone, okay? In, and in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter calls believers little stones, even as Jesus, remember, said to Peter, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. That word rock is not Petra. It's a smaller stone, a pebble, if you will. And so he's calling Peter one of the stones in this wall that he's building. And so while it is through Israel, the gates, that the message of the Messiah is given to all nations, it is on the foundation of the apostles' teaching about who the Messiah is, that the church rests. And so we have a great picture here of Jesus' message through Israel. The Messiah came through Israel. They were the gateway to the Messiah. But the foundation of the Messiah is in the teaching of the apostles' That's the foundations. And so I think that's the picture that John is seeing in this new Jerusalem. Now, we could argue about who actually lives there. The church will be there without question in my mind. Israel, they'll worship there for sure. Will they live there? I don't know. You can have that debate by yourself. But I gave you the the biblical substance why I believe they're going to be on the new earth. Anyway, John goes on in verses 18 to 21. He describes the different jewels that make up the gates and the foundations. And basically, it culminates in this picture of a spectacular, brilliant, multicolored, shining city. Okay, and he says, there's all, we read all these different jewels, and I'm not going to take the time to explain the colors and all of that, but there's a rainbow of different colors in all these jewels. Okay, in verses 18 to 21. And then he says, the gates are made of pearl. Not pearls, plural, pearl. Each gate is a singular pearl. Now, you can imagine this city. When we see the size of it in just a minute, imagine how big these gates are. Remember, the walls are about 200, over 200 feet. And um, the gate then is going to be massive. And each one is a single pearl. Okay, it gives you kind of a scope of the splendor and grandeur that God is going to build into this city. And then in verse 25, it says those gates are never closed. And we'll see that as we get there. But there's one other specific detail mentioned in verse 21 that I want you to to see very quickly, and it says, the street of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. Also, in verse 18, you read that the city was a pure gold like a transparent glass. So the street of the city is pure gold. The city itself is pure gold, and it says it's like transparent glass. We don't know gold that's completely transparent. This will be gold that we have never experienced before. Gold that we can't even imagine. Okay, If we picked up something that was transparent and looks like glass, we'd either think, oh, it must be diamond or you know, jasper or some jewel. Not gold. But John says, no, it's pure gold and it's transparent. Now, I can't explain that. But there are several theologians who suggest that As John looks at this city, basically what he's seeing is God's glory shining through all of these transparent uh, parts of the city, the foundations, the gates, the walls, the streets, the city itself, all of them transparent jewels so that it just magnifies and focuses people on the glory of God. And if, you know, everything being transparent, nothing will interfere with God's glory being seen 
No shadows, no disruptions. It's just going to be God's glory shining through this city, magnifying his glory like we, you can't imagine. Okay? Now, I'm not going to go into detail about all these gems, like, like I said, and this transparent gold, but it, again, it's not about the city. It's about who resides in the city. Okay? And not us. <laughs> we'll be there. But God himself will dwell there, the Bible tells us here in Revelation 21. That's the point. In verses 15 through 17, we come to the measurements of the city, and there's some interesting things here. First, we notice that the angel uses a reed or rod of gold, okay, a line of gold. There's a comparison, because if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel's given a vision of an angel measuring the millennial temple, not the city itself, but the millennial temple. And it says he uses a flaxen reed or a flaxen line. That means a linen line. And I think there's some significance in that Ezekiel's vision was the millennial temple. Remember, this is Christ's kingdom on earth before eternity, in a sense, begins. And Ezekiel sees an angel using a linen line or linen rope to measure the temple, which demonstrates a temporary character of even the millennial temple. Because the millennial kingdom will last for a thousand years. It has a specific beginning. It has a specific end. Linen linen or cloth doesn't last forever. It will degrade and pass away. Even as the old earth, even under the kingdom of Christ, will pass away. This measuring instrument is gold. And the significance, again, is that's not going to pass away. This is for eternity. And so Jesus is measuring not just the size. He's not showing just the size. He's showing the character, the eternal character, and the eternal value of what this city represents. Not because of what it's made of, again, but because of who is there. Okay, and that's the key part. Now, as far as measurements, it says the measurements had were basically the same for all three dimensions, height, width, and depth. The, it's 12,000 furlongs long, 12,000 furlongs wide, and 12,000 furlongs high. Now, that's biblical language, okay? If you want me to translate that, uh, a furlong is about 582 feet, and you wouldn't know that unless you watched horse races because they measure those in furlongs, okay? But let's translate that into our standards today. 12,000 furlongs would be between, depending on what standard you use, between 1,300 and 1,500 miles, it's one city, 1,300 to 1,500, so let's use the average of 1,400 miles square. All right, and then 1,400 miles high as well. So think of a big cube, 1,400 miles in size on all dimensions. Now, maybe that doesn't phase you. Maybe you don't understand math that well, so I'll explain it a little bit better for you, okay? If we were to use that space and compare it to what we understand today, the space encompassed by this city would be more than 3 billion cubic miles of space just in the new city of Jerusalem. 3 billion cubic miles of space. Now, I'm going to give you a contrast, okay? If you took the entire land surface, I'm not talking about the the water, but just the land surface of earth today, the surface of the earth today that is land is 57.5 million square miles. And we're talking about a city that encompasses 3 billion cubic miles. This is not going to be a small city. And you think, well, how could everybody live in one city? (laughs) I think God has that under control. Okay, if uh, one, one commentator said, if you took this new Jerusalem and you were able to kind of plop it down on North America, it would extend just the base of it, not the height, just the base of it would extend from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico and from Colorado to the Atlantic Ocean, one city. Now multiply that by 1,400 miles high and how many levels you can fit in that. I don't think God's going to have any problem fitting all the millions or billions of resurrected believers in that city, okay? 
Now, a few scholars have suggested that it may not be a cube. One suggested it may be a pyramid shape, which still fits the dimensions. And he said it's a pyramid with a throne of God at the top. I don't know. Okay, I can't tell you what shape it's going to be exactly. I don't think it's worth debating. I think it's just we understand God's going to make it so that it's going to be a perfect place for all of us to live and worship together. All right? So it really doesn't matter really how big or what shape it is. It will be the perfect size and the perfect environment for all of us to be and live and worship through all eternity without getting tired of it. Now, I don't know if we'll be able to walk faster, fly, whatever. Okay, but three billion cubic miles, I think it might take us a while to explore. So there's our first stage of eternity, if you will, just figuring out what God has given us. David Guzik says this, if, if the dimensions and descriptions seem confusing or impossible, there's two principles we need to keep in mind. First, we have to understand the ideas communicated in the details of this city, such as the glory, the splendor, and so forth, are from God, and we can't understand that, really. Second, we must understand that this is a city whose architect and maker is God. Therefore, we should expect it to be beyond our comprehension. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Okay, most of us can't even figure out what God wants us to do today. There's no reason why we need to spend all of our effort trying to put all these pieces in place to what what is this city going to be exactly. We'll find that when we get there. And it will be more incomprehensible than we could even not comprehend now. And that's the point. So there's no way we can even comprehend it now. Verse 22 tells us also there's no temple in this city. It says, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Remember, the temple represents the dwelling place of God. That's what the tabernacle was. It's where God's presence, in essence, resided, where they could see the, te- the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. And then in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. On the mercy seat is where God's presence was assumed to be. And in this new city, there will be no temple because God's presence will be literally in the middle of it. Not just in the middle of it, it will be in it. Because God is omnipresent and he's everywhere, but it will be centered in this city. So we don't need to go someplace to worship God in the new Jerusalem. We'll be in his presence personally. Now we say, All right, well, God is with us now. He promised to be with us now in spirit. Yes, that's true. We will be with him in person in this city. And no matter where we go, he will be there. Now, God can't dwell on this old cursed earth because of the effects of sin, the curse of sin, and and the sin that we carry around in this body. Okay? But he will dwell in this new Jerusalem because this new creation has been eradicated from all sin and all effects of sin and all remembrance of sin. And so it will be a perfect place. And actually, if you go back to verse 3, that's what God says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So there's no need for a temple, because God will be this place, really. Henry Alford, he's a 19th century theologian, he put it this way, the inhabitants of this city need no other place of worship or sacrifice because the object of all worship is present and the great sacrifice himself will be there. See, again, it's all about Jesus Christ and being in his presence. And then there's something else in verse 23, very quickly, the city won't have a sun or a moon. Verse 23, the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Now, Jesus told us in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And I know that he was talking about spiritual light and truth at that point, but literally he is the light of the new creation. And it tells us here, God and the Lamb will be the light. And so he is the light, literally, in every way possible that you could conceive of light. 
Jesus Christ is that light. And in eternity, he will be all the light that we will need. Now, again, it brings up the debate. All right, is there a sun and the moon in the new heavens that God creates? And some theologians actually suggest, well, God's presence is here, and his glory is here in the city, and so it lights the whole city, but it doesn't light all of creation because creation is around it or below it, and therefore there probably will be a sun and moon. The people who on earth will experience night and day just like Adam and Eve did at the creation in the Garden of Eden. Um, I don't know. I think because God is light and it says there is, there's no need of a sun or moon, why would God create something that there's no need of? I think he's going to create a new heavens. There's going to be stuff in it that we may not even know what it is, but I don't think we need a sun or a moon. I think God is all the light that we need. And some people will ask, well, how far can God's glory shine? And my question is, where can you go where God will not be? If he is everywhere, then his glory will shine everywhere. And so I don't think there will be a need, just like the Bible tells us, for a sun or a moon. God will be that light. And then verse 24 begins with, The nations of them which are saved shall shall walk in the light of it. The light of that city that emanates from God. Now, uh, there's more to this section that I can explain in the next five or ten minutes, so we're going to stop right there. Okay, because I don't want to scalp this passage and and, uh, not get into the depth of it. So we'll save the nations for next time. But, you know, again, as we see this picture of the, the heavenly city of the New Jerusalem, it all comes back to it's not about the city. It's not about the inhabitants of the city. It's all about who is the light, who is the center of it, who is the existence of it. The substance of eternity exists in Jesus Christ. And that's what's going to thrill us. Honestly, I think when we walk into eternity, we're not even going to see the city at first because we're going to be so enthralled with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and if we're not, (laughs) then we don't belong there. Okay, because it's him. It's not the city. It's not being together in fellowship forever. It's about Jesus Christ. So let's not lose that thought. And that translates to our lives today. It's not about the experience. It's not about the people. It's not about the great worship we can have together and the fellowship we can have together. It's about Jesus Christ. That should be the focus of our lives, no matter what we do, no matter where we are. And again, he promised. He is with us. He will be with us. He will not forsake us. And as I open the service, you know, great peace have they that love thy law. And if we focus on Jesus Christ, if we trust in the Lord, we know he's there and we live in his light every single day. All right, let's stop there. We'll pray, and then next time we'll pick this up again. Lord, thank you again for your word. We just thank you for the promise of this future home. And Lord, again, even though we're overwhelmed with the beauty and splendor of where we're going to live, Lord, it's who we're going to live with. That's the most important thing. Thank you that you have given us life in Jesus Christ, and we look forward to that literal eternal life with you in your presence, just glorifying and worshiping you every single moment for the rest of eternity. Lord, we can't wait for that, but give us patience and give us steadfastness to continue in the call that you've given to us now to fulfill these responsibilities looking forward to that day in the future. And and as Peter said, Lord, seeing that all the things we know of today are going to be dissolved in great heat, what manner of persons ought we to be even today? So, Lord, I pray that you convict our hearts, teach us to walk in your ways, and may you be glorified as we serve you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close our our service this morning with a hymn.